0: Uh, Welcome. Um, Glad you guys are here. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Mark chapter 6. And as you're kind of scrolling that way, uh, we're going to be in Isaiah 53 also. Um, If you want to kind of put a finger in Isaiah 53, we'll get to that as well. So Mark chapter 6, Isaiah uh, 53, and I'm going to pray and then we'll get going. Father, thanks for this morning. Thanks that we've already been able to worship you and uh, all kinds of different ways this morning. And I, I know there's so many obstacles uh, when it comes to Sunday mornings and making it to gather with the body of believers and um, getting out the door and setting aside things that we may have been ready to do. or There's so much um, that we have to jump over in order to gather together. And so I'm thankful, God, that um, our body, that our people, that those who are here right now who carved out time to specifically be here. And, and I know that... Um, Your word is not going to return void, and so I'm available to be used by you to speak your truth. And so, would you speak through me this morning? Um, Father, would your Holy Spirit just move amongst us and apply the truth that you have for each one of us? Um, And would you allow each one of us to take one step further uh, in our growth with you this morning? Encourage us, challenge us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So, I would say it's hard to outrun our past. Would you agree with me on that? But it's hard to outrun uh, your past, especially when you live in a small town. Um, I I grew up in a really, really small town in Southern Ohio, and I loved it. Um, But there are some unique things about growing up in in a small town. There's some really good things, and there's some things you're like, ah, I I could probably do without uh, some of those things as well. But I enjoyed my experience. One thing I noticed, though, about growing up in a small town is that life in a small town is sometimes like running on a treadmill. Um, you run and you run and you run, and you see the differences that are happening in you, but you may be the only one who ever sees the differences that are happening in you, uh, inside of you. You may be the only one who knows that you're running on, on a, a treadmill um, because uh, no matter how much is changing inside of you, No no matter how far you've gone along in your journey of faith, no matter how much change has taken from the past and who you are right now and what your life may be like right now, it feels like some people will only, only ever see you the way that they've seen you as you were a child or the way that you were growing up or the thing that you did. And you may want to see you as different. But everybody else around you may still be seeing you the same as you, who you used to be. Uh, I want to share an embarrassing story uh, with you of a nickname that I had when I was a child. Now, if I tell you this nickname, you have to promise, promise, promise that you will never use it uh, when you're around me, okay? So do I have everybody's word? Okay, so um, if you did not say anything, you are being held collectively with the yes of everybody else, okay? That's how it's going to work. Now, I certainly didn't ask for this nickname. I didn't uh, want this nickname, but for whatever reason, this nickname stuck. Um, When I was little, uh, apparently I rolled around and moved around a lot as a child. And my uncle... Now, remember, I'm from Appalachia. I'm from Southern Ohio. And in the Appalachia area, we do things a little bit differently. We say things a little bit differently. We act uh, a little bit differently. And so my uncle... Um, he said, uh, when he saw me moving around so much, he said, hey, look, he's just wallering around everywhere. Now, um, I feel like I might need to translate uh, what wallering around uh, means. Uh, in Southern Ohio, wallering around apparently means he moves around a lot. And so because I moved around a lot, he started calling me Wally. I don't understand it. I don't get it. But for whatever reason, Wally is what stuck in my family and in my hometown, okay? So whenever I go home to family gatherings and I go hang out with family, it's not uncommon for me to hear when I walk into the room, hey, look, it's Wally. Hey, look, Wally brought his family with him. And and so unfortunately, I can't outrun that nickname. I can't run fast enough to get past it. My family will always see me as Wally. Sometimes it's not that innocent, though, right? Uh, Sometimes we make mistakes. Sometimes we make big mistakes. Sometimes we're known as the smart guy or the smart gal in town. Or we get into a big fight and we become known as the guy who got into the the brawl. Um, We hit the winning shot at the end of a game and we become known for that heroics. Um, We divorce our high school sweetheart, and because of that, it becomes headline news, and everybody around us who loved her or loved him and thought we were the match made in heaven, now they're mad uh, at us because of that. We post a tweet, and that tweet um, goes viral, and after it goes viral, there are some questions uh, about the tweet, and you wish you could take it back, but you can't take it back. Now it's living on into um, uh, infamy and going on into eternity. And what happens is we take that baggage, whatever that is, and uh, it's still there and people always want to bring that up in our lives. Um, We can kind of carry that forward and in a hometown or in a small town, when somebody now hears your name or hears something about you, it's uh, what people remember about you is that thing, that one thing, the thing that you've become known for. And they think, oh, that's so-and-so. He's just a fill-in-the-blank, or that's so-and-so, she's just a a fill-in-the-blank, and usually that blank is what gets associated with our past, that thing that we wish that we could get rid of and we could expunge, but it's still sitting there. And this is particularly hard if you become a believer and you've trusted Christ, because you've been made new, and we know that, right? We just sang a bunch of songs about being made new and who we are, who Jesus says that we are. But when we trusted Christ, we've been made new, and we're not the same person that we used to be. The old is gone, the new has come, and uh, we're, just, we're just no longer who we used to be. We're, we're new. But people sometimes don't want to let us live in the newness of who we are. They want us to live in the past. They want to remember you as Wally. They want to remember you as who you grew up as, who you used to be, who, who, who uh, the mistake may be that you made from the past. And so I just want to know, like, is, is there anybody who's been carrying something like that from, from our hometown or from your hometown, something that you wish that you could leave behind, but that's how people know you. They grew up for, around you, and they've known you like this for your whole life, and that's how they still see you. It's hard to outrun your past, especially when your past lives next door in the small town in, 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 this, in this little area. And so what do we do with that? How how do we get away from from that trajectory of our life? Um, Well, we're looking at a section of text in Mark this morning where the people who have known Jesus his entire life, um, they're just, they're starting to kind of go sideways a little bit on Jesus. And and what we're going to see is some hostility coming from his hometown. And so uh, we're going to kind of label this hometown hostility, okay? So if you have your Bible, we're in, again, we're in Mark chapter six, and I want to set up this section a little bit for us. Okay, Remember, we're in a Mark series, we're in the Tethered series, and we've realized that Mark's a good storyteller, but he's not just interested in telling us good stories, he's trying to show us what it looked like for ordinary men and women to become disciples of of Jesus, um, to to begin to walk this life out. And so the stories that Mark shows us are stories that help prepare followers of Jesus to get ready for the road of discipleship that is not always going to be marked by easy stuff. The road of discipleship that they are going to walk down throughout the course of their life is going to be marked with rejection. And so Jesus has got to get them ready for that. And so he allows them to see certain experiences and to walk with him in a certain moment so that he can prepare them for the rejection that not only he is going to experience, but the rejection that they are eventually going to experience as well. So the deal is that Jesus right now is in this section, he's physically on earth at this time because he's come to destroy sin. He's come to get rid of and eradicate the stronghold that Satan has had on human beings and on the world itself. And so this is why Jesus steps out of heaven and why he wraps himself in flesh. He is born to be what Isaiah calls in the prophecies to be a man of sorrows. He knows that he's been born to die, that he's going to be rejected. He knows that he's eventually going to give up his life and die, that he's going to go to a cross. And this isn't a surprise to him. The disciples don't understand it. They're going to, but they don't understand this yet. And so to help us get our, uh, the context in our minds, I want to read Isaiah um, 53. Now, the prophet Isaiah, um, he wrote this section of text, this prophecy, over 700 years or around 700 years before Mark chapter 6 ever comes into existence. Okay, And so this section of isaiah it was pointing towards the savior who was going to come one day and we know this with hindsight that this was jesus and so as we look with as we look at this we're looking through the filter of jesus and and this is written about him so um, isaiah chapter 53 starting in verse two for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and, he was, and we esteemed him not. And then moving down to verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds were healed. Now again, Isaiah, he's pointing to the Savior. And we know the Savior, with hindsight, is Jesus. He was the Messiah. And so Jesus knows, as this scripture was written, that this was about him. And that this is what he had to look forward to. He knew that painful and hostile rejection was a part of the deal. And eventually rejection was going to come not only for him, but it was also going to come for the disciples as well. And so Jesus has got to get the disciples ready for the rejection that they will face once he is gone. And so that kind of sets the context of why Mark 6 is, is even uh, on the radar of Mark as he writes this, okay? So Mark 6, starting in verse 6. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? Which, when he says the son of Mary, that, that, that's meant to be derogatory, what people were saying. Because you, typically, it was the son of the father. But they, this was a derogatory thing that people in the town were saying. Um, isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his, home and in his own household. And he would do, And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Okay, so last week we remember that Jesus was amazed at the faith of a Jewish synagogue leader by the name of Jairus as he trusted in Jesus to heal his daughter. And he was amazed by the faith of a, a, a woman who was broken and just falling down at the feet of Jesus. And the faith of these two people just amazed Jesus. But now there's... This moment where Jesus is equally amazed at the unbelief or the hostility that he knows that he's beginning to face in his own hometown. And so we've got to ask the question, what's changed for Jesus since that moment with these two um, people who are bowing down at his feet to this moment right now? The only thing that's changed is that he left Capernaum and now he's back in Nazareth. And Nazareth was the hometown of Jesus. This is his stomping grounds. This is where he was raised, okay? And for us to kind of get our minds around the, the distance of what this would have been like, this would have been like Jesus was hanging out in Grand Island, and then he decided to leave Grand Island and come hang out in Ashland. And Ashland would be the place where everybody knows him, right? Everybody knows his name. Everybody knows his background. And these are the people that he grew up and he grew up around. So when Jesus gets to Nazareth, he goes to the synagogue and teaches there. Now we've seen him do this every time he goes into a new area where there's a synagogue, he goes and teaches. This is not uncommon for somebody who's a teacher when they go into a new area to walk into the synagogue. It was, it was customary. And so it's not, it's not a big deal in our minds to see that Jesus is going into the synagogue. When somebody comes, a teacher comes to, your, to, comes to your synagogue, if you're the synagogue leader, you kind of step out of the way and you hand them the pulpit and they teach uh, for, for that morning. And so Jesus, he's become a teacher. And that's what he's doing. He's teaching in the synagogue. And what I want you to pay attention to here is something that's very subtle, but it really jumps off the page. When you perceive somebody one way, and then they start acting in a different way than the perception that you had of them, there's questions that begin to bubble up to the top. You think one way about somebody, and then they start acting a way that is contrary to what you thought about them. Now you start to ask your question. Well, what's changed or what's different? Why, why is he or she not acting the way that I thought that they should act? In verse 2, many who heard him were astonished or amazed, it might say in your translation there, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? And what they're asking is, what's changed about Jesus? This is not the Jesus that we grew up with. This is not the Jesus that we remember. Do you, you ever leave a place and then come back after, after being gone for a while? Maybe, maybe it was your hometown. Maybe it was Ashland or maybe you were from an, another town. Uh, when Ashley and I um, uh, first got married, uh, we went back to a church uh, from where I grew up a church that had raised me up as, as a little youngling, okay? And I was not a decent kid. I, w- I was a terrible kid. And it had been about two decades since i have been back in this church. And when we walked into the, the doors, guys, they couldn't have been more shocked to see me standing in that place. I mean, it was, it was a big deal because, again, I was not a good kid. They were glad to see me go every time the, every time the, the church van would come and pick me up to take, take me home. And so when I walked in, it was no joke. Like, they were like, wow, where have you been? And the thought was like, we thought you might have been in jail or or something. We had no idea that you would ever have even begun to even think about being in ministry. Like, we believe God can do stuff, but I didn't know that he could really do that, okay? I mean, so it was just utter shock and disbelief when we walked into the door. I wasn't who they remembered me to be. Their perception of me was set in one direction, but I was acting in a different way in front of them. Now, this hometown crowd, they wanted to know what changed in Jesus. Now, before we start unpacking this, there are some questions that usually begin to show up when we start talking about the childhood of Jesus and what his adolescence was like. And and questions circle around the idea, well, when Jesus was younger, did he have special power? Did he do miraculous things when he was a kid? Did he do miraculous things? Did he teach miraculously when he was an adolescent? Um, Because we know him to be both fully God and to be fully human at the same time, right? So did he use some of that fully God stuff? So did he use some of the God stuff when when he was little or when he was an adolescent? Like, did Mary come to him and be like, hey, uh, Jesus, go do your chores? And how did he handle that when it was chore time? Right? I mean, We're peeking around the corner of the text here. We don't know the answer to this. Um, but, like, if Mary was like, hey, uh, Jesus, do your chores, Jesus is like, okay, and then Mary, like, kind of goes around and starts doing her thing, and then, like, he just kind of waves his hand, and then the chores are all done miraculously. Like, some of us grew up be like, gosh, I, I wish I would have had that trick. I mean, that would have been really handy to have in my tool belt back then because i got a lot done. i got my chores done, and I would have been on to hang out with other people. But is that how Jesus acted? Like, how, how like... Did Jesus do miracles when he was a young kid or when he was an adolescent? We don't have many details about his childhood. We don't know a lot about his adolescent years. We have um, one, maybe two occurrences of him when he is 12 years old and we hear a little bit about him um, in the temple um, when uh, when he's left behind in the temple and and he's kind of around the teachers being about his father's business, he says. But outside of that, we don't really have a lot about him as an adolescent. And so we kind of have to fill in the gaps when we're thinking about that. And there have been all kinds of books that have been written, all kinds of scandalous material about uh, Jesus' um, uh, middle years before we pick up with him when he's in his 30s being baptized in, uh, in the Jordan River, right? Like there, there's a lot that we fill the gaps in, um, but the reality is that it's a lot of speculation. We, we can't say with certainty what Jesus did when he was a child or what he did when he was an adolescent. And so the question that the crowd is asking here is, What did he all of the sudden, or where did he all of the sudden get this wisdom? Where did he all of the sudden get this power? Like, this, this is little Jesus that we grew up with. This is little Jesus who was down in 3B, down on the first floor, right? Our kids played together with him in the soccer league. Like, we saw him down at the market. What's going on now? The question that they have and the multiple questions that they have, it leads us to believe that Jesus didn't do this stuff when he was a young kid, that he didn't do this stuff when he was a teenager. To them, Jesus was just another 30-year-old dude who they knew that they had grown up with. Um, they knew his childhood nicknames. They knew the little details about his life because they were in a small town with him. They were in his hometown. They, they knew all the ins and outs about who he was, and for us, 2,000 years later, it's easy for us to look back with hindsight and be like, gosh, guys, Like, how did you miss it? Like, How did you not see that Jesus was the Messiah? How did you not see that? But we've got to understand that the people who were in his hometown, like, they were living in the moment. They were living in real time and experiencing this kind of stuff. So in real time, what would they have expected out of uh, Jesus? Or what would they have seen out of Jesus or any other young Jewish boy um, at that time? With Jesus, they would have seen a young boy who's going to school, They would have seen a young boy who is studying the Torah because that's what young Jewish boys do. They would have seen a family who loved God and because they loved the law of God, they were teaching him the commandments of God. They would have seen a little boy who's playing outside with all the other children. They would have seen um, him just like any other children, living like any other child would with one uniqueness though that scripture tells us. There's one uniqueness about Jesus that was not true of any other child. Scripture tells us that he was, a, he was a young boy or he was a man who had never sinned. And so we look at the history of his life and we have to understand that in everything that he did, as normal as he was, there was still a moment that he just never sinned, which allows him to be the one who's able to go to the cross as a perfect sacrifice for us. And so other than that, he's a normal boy growing up. And what, what about this idea of a carpenter? Like when, when uh, Jewish boys were growing up, it was normal, it was common if their father was still alive for them to learn the trade of their father. And so we're assuming that, G- that Joseph, his, his earthly father, was a carpenter and he's passed this trade down to his son. So some of his life was spent learning the trade of a carpenter that he can use his hands to build and to put things together. And so we have to think about this. He had to have been normal or else people wouldn't have been shocked when he was teaching. They wouldn't have been astonished by him that we read in verse 2. Verse 2 says that they were astonished by him. And the word astonished means overwhelmed. Um, and, and the idea of being overwhelmed, there's a sense of all that comes with this word, but it gets mixed with the idea that we just don't understand what we're seeing right now. Like we, we are confused by what's in front of us. Like we are amazed, but, but we're confused about what's going on here. And, and that's hard for us sometimes. And so if it's hard for you to realize that Jesus was just a, a normal person, and if it's hard for you to realize how difficult it would have been for the people of Nazareth to accept Jesus as anything other than normal, we've got to think about when we first heard about Jesus. When you first heard the name of Jesus and that you were, that you were a sinful person and that you needed Jesus to be a savior so that you might spend eternity with him, what kind of obstacles did you have to jump over? Like, what, what stumbling blocks were in the way? Scripture tells us that even Jesus himself was a stumbling block to others. So what do we have to jump over to understand Jesus as the Savior? They're jumping over obstacles right now in very real time. Um, they're living this out in, in front of them. And, and this is what I want us to pay attention to. Because this is where the problem begins to show up. Here, here's the tension. Right after they're astonished. Now remember, why, why are they astonished? They're astonished because they have a perception of Jesus and Jesus is not living out their perception. There's something that has changed and they can't wrap their minds around it. And so because of that, after they're astonished, they kind of begin to turn on Jesus and they start poking at him and they say in verse three, isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. I don't know if you knew this or not, um, but Jesus ends up not being an only child. Mary was a virgin when Jesus was born. So there's this miraculous birth that takes place with Jesus. But somewhere after Jesus is born, there are some brothers and sisters who begin to come into the picture. And so they look at him. This is just another kid. This is just another family member. Isn't he just a carpenter? Like We see his brothers and his mom and his sisters and, and, and everybody around him. And then they take offense at him. Now, the word offense there in verse three, it comes from the Greek word "scandalizo." What What "scandalizo" sound like to you? Yeah, sounds like scandal, right? And that's what they thought. They, they thought that this was a scandal. They thought that Jesus was a scandal. Um, it means that they did not believe that Jesus was a savior. They couldn't explain him, they couldn't wrap their mind around him. So instead of trying to figure out the details, what they did was they just absolutely they just re- reject him. And so when we read this, like we're shocked, and we live in disbelief, like how did you guys miss this? But we've got to think that this is the boy that they watched grow up in their hometown. This was the hometown kid. They watched him kicking rocks down the road as he was on his way to the synagogue. They watched him and his brothers and his sisters eating out in the front lawn. They watched his mom feeding him when he was a baby. In their minds, they knew everything about Jesus. Jesus, we know. We grew up with him. And now something changed, and they couldn't possibly wrap their mind around the fact that he he could actually maybe be the savior. They just can't they can't do it. And I like how the NLT translates the question that we read there. Where it says, isn't this just isn't this the carpenter? The New Living Translation, they translate it like this. They say, "He's just a carpenter" because they're grabbing the attitude that these folks had. "He's just a carpenter." And the only way that they could see Jesus was through the first 30 years of his life. They see him as a carpenter, and they couldn't see him as anything else. Anybody ever look at you and just, man, they can only see the first 20 years of your life? They can only see the first five years of your life? They can only see the first 37 years of your life, and that gets wrapped up in all kinds of baggage? Like, no, that's not who I am anymore. There's something that's changed. There's a difference here. That's what we deal with in hometowns. It, it, it's, it's hard to shake who we used to be. It's hard to shake the change and the perception that people have of us as we're growing up. In in people's mind, it could be, you're just a, you fill in the blank, you're just a thing that you did, you're just a thing that you said, you're just a kid that we grew up with and we can't ever see you as anything different. Because we live in a a small town and a lot of y'all are from this town. Ashland is home base for you. And people that you grew up with, uh, they know you. They know the ins and outs of your life. They know what you did when you were five. They know what happened on prom night. Uh, They know about the divorce. They know about the bankruptcy. They know about every little detail of your life because the truth is in a small town, news spreads really, really quickly. And the fear is that we can begin to let somebody's perception of us keep us from pursuing Jesus. We can let people's perception of us keep us from following out Christ the way that he's called us to go. We can let somebody's perception of us throw us off of track because we may want to see ourselves as different, but the people around us want to keep telling us we're only the same person they've ever known. They won't want to let us move into the new person that God has created us to be. It's hard to outrun our past when our past is living right next door to us. So what do we do? How do we proceed forward? Here's what I want to say. When we walk with Jesus, we're never going to be just a anything. We're never going to be just a, a fill in the blank. When we walk with Jesus and when it comes to discipleship and following him and going where he's called us to go, there's a sense that he is giving us a holy calling. He's given us a task and a mission to do. And that holy calling, that holy work that he's called us to do, that is going to come with hostility. We just know it. If Jesus faced hostility, we're going to face hostility as well. And so it's going to come, but we'll never be just a fill in the blank. And so here's what I think we need to do. I think we need to believe the change that God has done in us. If you're a believer in Christ, believe that God has changed you. That he has made you new. That you are one with Christ. That you are seated in the heavenlies with him. That there is something that has changed. And so don't let somebody's perception of you change who God has made you to be. You are who Jesus says you are, as we sung about earlier. Don't let somebody's perception. So um, believe the change that God has made in you. Know that the holy work that God has given you to do is going to come with hostility. Don't be shaken when it shows up. Don't be knocked off track because you face some hostility. We know... That that's coming. And so the last thing is just keep going. We know that hostility is coming, so keep going. Don't give up because of some knucklehead uh, of, of hostility. We see this with Jesus here. The, the people could only see Jesus as a kid or the carpenter or the guy who lived down the street. And, and listen to how they miss the blessing of God here in verse four. And Jesus said to them, a prophet isn't without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. There's a term that we know in our culture. It's called familiarity breeds contempt. The closer you get, the more you hang out with somebody, you, you begin to, it just becomes natural to you. And what Jesus was saying here is even in his hometown, somebody's not accepted because of the familiarity that comes with that. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Let, let, let's see it real quick. He says, um, it's not, he it says he couldn't do m- many miracles there. Or he couldn't do any miracles there, except he healed a couple of people. That seems like a few miracles to me, right? But why couldn't he do there what he had been doing in other places? It's not that he, he, he spiritually couldn't do it. Power, he didn't, like, he didn't leak power, right? He still had the ability to do that. But what hindered him from doing that was the belief of the people who were there. They just could not put their faith in Jesus. And so there are still obstacles and objections to Jesus that we have today. Some of the same stuff that they were dealing with then. But the objections, the objections to the truth, it doesn't undo what Jesus has done. There, There are gonna be objections. There's gonna be hostility, but it doesn't change what Jesus has already done. And so here's the challenge that I wanna leave us with. The same thing that we just talked about. Believe the change that God has made in us. And believe the change that God has made in other people too. If he's changed you, he has the ability to change somebody else. It's so easy for us to see somebody as just who they used to be. It's so easy to see the five-year-old version of somebody. It's easy to see the alcoholic version of somebody. It's easy to see the drug-addicted version of somebody. But when Jesus comes in and makes something clean, he makes it clean completely. And so let's believe the change that God has not only made in ourselves, but we can believe the change that God is making in somebody else, that he has done a miraculous thing in them. And then, again, the holy calling that God has given us, know that that is going to come with hostility. And knowing that that's going to come with hostility, it gives us a little extra pep in our step to keep going, that we don't stop. The work that god has called us to do just because we face hostility we keep we keep moving forward when we walk with jesus there's gonna be hostility but hostility at the end of the day that's not what wins i want to leave with a couple of thoughts here i, I want to be a church that celebrates the change in somebody's life i want to be a church that celebrates When God comes in and does a miraculous thing, we don't hold up somebody's past and say, look who you used to be. We look at them and say, look who God has made you to be. And then we celebrate and we encourage and we challenge towards growth, but we don't push people back into who they used to be and by holding up who they used to be. We move in and we celebrate who who they are now. Let's celebrate that. Let's celebrate God's mercy and his grace and let's rejoice. Um... It's easy for us to believe what we hear about somebody from the mouth of another person. Isn't it? Like somebody tells us something about somebody and then we begin to kind of go down this route. Oh, if, they, if so-and-so said that, it must be true. It must be who that person is. But I, I like to say in our staff and in our family and the people around me, let's give people the benefit of the grace. If, if, let's believe who God has made somebody to be as opposed to what somebody else might be saying because it's coming out of maybe their perception as well. And let's trust that God has made you more than just uh, fill in the blank. And remember, if people are hostile, we have to remember that our work is still holy. It doesn't change what God has called us to do. And we don't stop because of the rejection. Because I, I was reading in. Um, Acts chapter 8, this week in, in our uh, Bible reading plan. And you get to Acts chapter 8, and actually, Acts chapter 1, you have, um, uh, you go to the ends of the earth, right? You, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And Jesus has already prepared them to go to the ends of the earth. And then in chapter 2, you get the, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Now people are empowered to go out. Disciples are empowered to go out and do the work that God has given them to do. And you, and you skip through a, a few different chapters that the church is building and they're growing, and you get to Acts chapter 8, and there is so much persecution that's coming at the church. There is so much hostility that's coming at the church. And Saul, who we later know as Paul, right? In this moment, he is, he is kind of fundraising For the church to be persecuted. He is benefiting from the church being persecuted. He is actually going out and looking for people to persecute. There was a lot that the church was facing in the day. And in Mark chapter six, Jesus was preparing the disciples for that moment, that they would not give up, that they would keep going out and keep going out. You know what happens in Acts chapter eight? The church begins to explode because of the persecution. Keep moving forward with what God has called us to move forward with. Um, We're going to face hostility, but it doesn't stop the mission that God has called us to. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, thank you. Um, Thank you for our hometown. Thank you for the life that we're building in this space. Um, There's a lot of good that comes from hometowns. And there's a lot of um, preconceived ideas that people may have of us. Father, if you've changed us in this room, would you help us to live in that change? but know that there's still going to be hostility and that we can live our faith in the middle, that we don't have to be who somebody else tells us we are. We can be who you say that we are. And so would you remind us that we're not just a, but we are a child of God who's been made perfect in your sight. And so help us to live out of that place, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.